I actually think this is a perfect time to talk about this particular subject because it's Christmas. Uh, and Christmas is a time of family, it's a time of gathering with your kin, it's a time of love and generosity and learning how to do life together and being together in all its complexity. It's a time where we try and overlook our differences and just enjoy some time as families. We try to make sure everyone has somewhere to go and spend Christmas Day that no one's left alone, but all can find a warm welcome somewhere. Even if it's awkward, or there is difficult history, or differences are not mentioned. More importantly for us, Christmas is actually about how God didn't stay aloof, but instead came to get involved with us as humanity. In all our difference, in all our variety, in all our spectrum of life experience, God wanted to come in alongside and do life with us, and show us how to live for the kingdom. Amen? That's pretty relevant to the subject that I'm speaking about today. God with us, Emmanuel. Now, I'm speaking to a very mixed audience today. There will be uh, those of you who are strongly LGBT-affirming, and there will be those of you who are deeply concerned and fearful. So whatever I say this morning, I'm not going to please everybody. Can we just understand that? I'm not going to tell you what to think either. I'm going to share my perspective. And I'm hopefully going to help us to respond well to these issues as a local church. And I think sometimes it can be helpful to imagine we have some of the most interested parties in when we talk about these sensitive issues. It would be so easy just to sort of gauge opinion, uh, like a consensus from an in-crowd, and then speak in such a way that might evoke the best response from the room. But you know what? That doesn't help. So with this one, I want to imagine a front row full of new people. So that's what we've got here. We've got some guests in with us today. Uh, so I want to introduce you to them over here. Uh, slightly uh, kind of non-specific shaped person. This is God right here. God has come. Emmanuel is with us. We want to welcome you, God, because you are a guest of honour today. Next to God, we have a retired itinerant brethren preacher whose grandson has just come out and has brought his boyfriend home from university for the family Christmas. His, his grandson is terrified of being rejected, so this grandfather is torn between affirming a beloved son and the uh, and son of the family and staying true to his beloved scriptures. And he's here this morning to find peace and a way forward. He's really interested in what I've got to say. Okay, next we have a highly successful bisexual woman who has sexual encounters with many people in her global fashion world and has just taken an interest in Christianity because her best friend found Christ on an Alpha course in London. She loves what she sees in her friend's faith and she's working out whether it's okay for her to explore faith too. She's really interested in what I've got to say this morning. Okay, next to her with the nice floppy hairdo looking a little bit like Hugh Grant from Four Weddings and a Funeral, we have a single celibate vicar who is on holiday in the area and has dropped in to worship with us because he's found us online and thought we looked like a great church. 
This wonderful man has experienced same-sex attraction since childhood and has carefully considered everything the scriptures has to say on homosexuality and has concluded that he is simply not permitted by God to have a sexual partner and has embraced a life of singleness and deep friendships and has found peace with that life decision. He is sad that these issues are not more easily talked about in church, so he is really interested in what I have to share this morning. Next to him, we've got a same-sex couple here who have been faithfully together for 20 years. They recently married when the law was changed. They together have adopted four beautiful disabled children, and they are fully devoted to them. They are adored by their community and known to be some of the most selfless people around. They've begun to come to this church since the summer, rekindling a childhood faith in them both, and would now like to be baptised together and join the church. They've been waiting for this message since they arrived. Next to them, we have uh, this guy here with a nice cowboy hat. Somewhat awkwardly sat next to these two, we have uh, these visitors from the States. This Mississippi family are from a right-wing Southern Baptist church community. They've been involved in anti-gay protests in the past, and one of them actually has a t-shirt saying, Turn or Burn, under his coat this morning. So that's the front row. Okay. Can we say hi to all our friends here? It's good to have them with us. Oh, and then we have each of you, each with your own perspective and interpretation of Scripture. So where do we start? Perhaps we need to acknowledge how polarizing this conversation can, has become, so that we can speak with great care. For some, to be anything but totally affirming of LGBT lifestyles or to, qu- or to question the morality of any aspect is deeply offensive and hurtful. For some, it is dis- as distasteful as questioning whether or not the Holocaust actually happened. In the sense that, if you are even entertaining that question, you are bitterly dishonouring a whole community, most of whom have already suffered enough. There are people that would consider that to be the key issue. For others, at the other end of the spectrum, to accept anyone in my imaginary front row here, apart from maybe God and our Mississippi friend, um, to embrace them as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ is tantamount to heresy. Some would feel that to do so would be to twist the word of God and to support the moral decline of society, to become an abomination to the Lord and to compromise the spotless bride of Christ to see how polarizing this conversation can be. So not surprisingly, many churches don't survive this conversation. And I want you to hear me on this. Two Baptist churches, just like ours, within a 15-mile radius of this one, have been almost completely destroyed over this conversation. With ministers and trustees resigning and the majority of church members walking out and finding new places to worship. That's here, on our doorstep, in the last 12 months. That's how divisive this issue can be. I believe the devil is having a wonderful time with this issue. And the stakes are high, just opening the conversation. So I want you you to to understand the complexity of the subject. I also want your commitment to stand against disunity. Because the enemy would seek to bring division in us over these issues. Are you with me? I don't want you all to walk out. 
I want to find the way of Jesus in all of this. Amen? So, beginning with Jesus. Always a good place to start. How did he respond to the LGBT community? Well, those of you who have looked into this uh, will know that the Gospels don't really speak much directly into this issue. In the culture that Jesus lived, there was a widespread understanding of the Jew Jewish law that explicitly states that marriage was given that a man and a woman might be joined together before God, and that homosexual sexual practice was an abomination to Yahweh. That was written in stone for them. It was the accepted understanding. So it wasn't the burning issue open to debate that it is today. They didn't discuss it as we do. That's not to say that nobody in Jesus' time experienced same-sex attraction or transgender feelings. I'm sure many did. It just wouldn't have been open for conversation. Those feelings would either be suppressed or explored in secret, no doubt with a lot of shame and fear alongside in that culture. So, not surprisingly then, we don't have many words of Christ that are directly dealing with this. He did respond controversially to many other things that were a violation of Jewish law and culture, such as what the Sabbath was really for, things like that. He's, he frequently broke the religious mold and upset people with his teaching on the kinds of people we should welcome and to explore the kingdom with and to allow to become our most intimate friends. Jesus had prostitutes and outcasts and tax collectors in his inner friendship circle. He loved their company. He didn't seem to need to point out the verses in Leviticus that, con that condemned them for their lifestyle and then exclude them from himself on moral grounds. He just welcomed them and enjoyed their company. In fact, he was so fond of befriending people who were not yet in step with scripture that he earned himself the nickname Friend of Sinners, a name he embraced happily. So for me, Jesus' approach to friendship is the strongest incentive for us as his people to fully welcome and embrace anyone in the LGBT community to journey with us and to learn alongside us what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Our doors should be flung wide open to everyone who is remotely attracted to him. Amen? Yes. So... Jesus also explicitly said this. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. He will judge the world. Okay? All of us will give an account for how we've responded to his word. But the only one with authority and wisdom to rightly judge our hearts and our lifestyles is him. It's on his job description, not mine and not yours. The interesting thing is it's not his priority either. He stated his priority is to save and not to judge. To give access to life and wholeness and not to condemn people before they've had opportunity to come to know life in him. Amen? That's our number one goal. To open the door as wide as we can to life in him. The fact, that, the fact is that what upset him more than anything else was the way so many religious types prevented people from finding faith and finding wholeness and life in God. Rejecting people at the door because they didn't agree with their lifestyles. It made Jesus' blood boil. That was the thing that upset him more than anything else. In fact, Luke 6, 36 says this. You must be compassionate 
just as your Father is compassionate. Do not judge others, and you yourselves will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or, or it will all come back against you. Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, as soon as we start excluding people from the list of those who we think are acceptable to God, we find ourselves on very dangerous ground. We all have stuff that we wrestle with when it comes to our lifestyles. None of us are perfectly in step with Scripture. So how can we work out what God expects from us when it comes to our lifestyles and our feelings and our relationships? Well, we have been given three things that help us, and these are they. First, we have the Word, we also have the Spirit of God, and we have wise Christians whom, whom we have invited to help us with our issues. Those are the big three. And in my experience, they are sufficient to handle anything that life throws at us. The Word is powerful. It's uncompromising, able to speak to us at the deepest levels and transform us to think and to feel like Christ. The Word is powerful to do that. Next, we have the Spirit. And the Spirit is faithful to speak to each of us about our deepest feelings and to empower us to choose his best for our lives, even if it requires sacrifice and self-denial. Jesus said this is what the Holy Spirit will do. He says clearly in John 16, he says, It is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the Advocate, who is the Holy Spirit or the Life Helper, he won't come. If I go away, then I will send him to you. And what will he do? When he comes, he will convict the world of its sin, of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. So whose job is it to convict of sin and to lead us into God's righteousness? It's his job to shape our hearts and our lifestyles, not ours. It's our job to lead people to him. That's our job description. So there's the Word and the Spirit that can help. And then there are those who, in, who we invite to help us. <coughs> Jesus often had people come to him saying, I want to follow. I want my whole life to be lived for God. What must I do? And Jesus would then suggest a few things that would help them. Stuff like, you have to start all over again. You have to be born again, Nicodemus. To another guy, he said, you can't come much further until you've put down all of your wealth. Go. It's holding you back. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. Jesus didn't, always dish out didn't ever dish out compromises or easy options. He always helped people to see a way forward, but it usually required humility and sacrifice. And people didn't always like his straight answers either when they asked these big life questions. But what I want to see this morning is that they asked. These people came to Jesus and said, what must I do? They wanted to know from Jesus how they could reshape their lives to experience more of the kingdom of God. And Jesus only seemed to have three categories of people that he responded to and told them what they needed to do with their lives in order to be in line with the kingdom of God. Three categories of people. The first one were uh, his inner circle of already signed up disciples. 
They wanted to know. That's why they were following him. They wanted to know everything there was to know about the kingdom. So Jesus spoke directly and quite strongly into their lives quite often. He would rebuke them and say, no, it's not that way, it's this way. It's the first category, his disciples. Second category were the religious leaders. And that's because they needed telling. And it really ticked him off. So Jesus would constantly tell them what was wrong with them and why they were not in step with the kingdom because he was angry that they were preventing so many people from experiencing the kingdom of God. Okay? That's the second group of people. He, he told them how to live. Third group of people were those who came and asked him, what must I do? What must I change? What do you see in my life that I need to look at in order to follow you more fully? It's the same with us. Unless we are invited to help someone, we don't need to make their lifestyle our business. Can I get an amen? We are invited into these sensitive conversations. We don't broadcast our opinion from any position, which is why I've got to be very careful this morning. It's not our job to go around addressing people's personal lives. Of course, we can see things, and we can be concerned, and we can lift people to the Lord for his blessing, but we don't need to point out every speck in every eye. And we can make a life choice. Not to withhold our love in any way from people just as they are, regardless of who they are or what their experience is. So if we're invited to speak into a delicate issue of sexuality or gender confusion, etc., we first need to understand the person's experience. Often people have endured indescribable pain and despair, sometimes even contemplated suicide because, they're, because of their inner turmoil it's been so acute. Are you with me? We are treading on sensitive ground. So I would hope that my ministry practice in this area would be to listen first. Listen, 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 and, and just love them. Listen and listen. Love as Jesus does. Free to fully befriend anyone, regardless of what that person has chosen to do or be or what experience they've had. Just love them and listen. The next thing I would want to do is, if they would like to look at the Word together and process the hard choices that the Word presents us with, that's all of us, I'd be willing to do that with them. Just to go through the Scriptures, one after another, and work out what these things meant in the context, how they could be applied, what, what the word may be saying to them at this moment in time. Because do you know what? The Holy Spirit doesn't always just fix everything all at once, does he? Maybe the Lord's not saying anything at this time and there will be a timing to deal with these issues. But if they're, they're ready to look at that and they want to come and look at it with me, I, I would make time for that, always. And then we'd want to support that person to work out their hard choices for themselves with the Lord and we minister peace and freedom and, yes, sometimes even transformation in the power of the Holy Spirit when invited to do so. Because the Lord has got power to transform and bring peace. Amen? So, should we look at some of the really hard sayings of the scriptures on homosexuality to start with? Okay, this is from 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Don't you realise that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin 
or who worship idols, or, or who commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. The list goes on in between. It's 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Next one. Do not practice homosexuality, having sex with, other, with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. One more. The law is for people who are the law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching. That's pretty straight down the line, isn't it? Anyone ever broken a promise? For me, these scriptures are uncompromisingly clear. I know that there is uh, understanding to be had about their original context, their original audience, and how culture has evolved. But there's no getting around the bottom line. For me, that same-sex sexual practice is not permitted or blessed by God, however monogamous and respectful the relationship may be. God says it's not his plan for any of us. That's my view. The whole world can agree that something is right, but that doesn't make it right. Our understanding of right and wrong must come from our creator, our redeemer, and our judge. If we live to please him, we must understand his purposes for humanity and seek to live within them as best we can. That desire to live out his purposes will challenge us all at times. But we need to acknowledge that for some of us, that challenge is greater than others than it is for others. Some decide that the challenge of living by God's word is too great and they walk away sad, much like the guy who was asked to sell all his possessions. He left Jesus sad because he had so much to lose. The kingdom asked an awful lot of him. Now, I want to say a little bit about orientation because that has a bearing on how we consider the scriptures that I've just read and what it, how to apply those scriptures and what it means to be struck by those scriptures in the Word. Are we born gay or straight, happy with our gender or in need of a change? Is it a matter of choices and nurtured temptations or are some of these things hardwired into our genes? In short... I think both can play a part. We're in the middle of what I would describe as the second global sexual revolution. The first in the 60s with the free love movement. Uh, and I know a lot of you are caught up in that. <laughs> I've heard the stories. This, I think, is the second one. Championed with the proud-to-be movement. Uh, and has more to do with changing cultural attitudes and changing perception of human identity. If you talk to our young people who are in secondary school or sixth form college or university, um, they will tell you that the, there is pressure to experiment. And the, the scope of that experimentation is a lot wider than it used to be. So culture and experimentation and temptation, I think, certainly plays a part 
in people walking down avenues that perhaps they would feel prohibited to have done so maybe just 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So I think that plays a part, but so does our genes, I think. Having spoken to a number of people who are same-sex attracted, uh, many of whom have felt that way since their earliest, earliest memories. Um, again, the scripture is pretty quiet about this, but there is one very interesting whisper from Jesus himself. Turn to Matthew 19. I'm going to read from verse 3. I'm going to put it on the screen if you haven't got a Bible to hand. So, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So this is a marriage question. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore man shall leave his, his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. You've heard that at most weddings you've been to, right? So they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of a divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, Hang on. Yeah. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a, of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So what's going on here? Marriage in Jesus' culture was in a bit of a mess, with lots of people divorcing and remarrying over minor things and justifying the, the jettisoning of their marriages and going after, it's basically men going after new wives, uh, happening all over the place and justifying it with scripture. That's the context that Jesus is speaking into. And that's why they, they come to him with this question to trap him because there's obviously a bit of a divided opinion as to whether this should be happening or not. Because some say, well, it's in the law. Others say, well, it's just not right. What's Jesus gonna say? So Jesus responds to this issue first by recasting God's vision for marriage. That God made man male and female, and that man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he said, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So your marriages are sacred to him. And we will, he will hold us to account of how we treasure our marriages. It's not to say that they, can, they always work for the duration of our lives, sometimes marriages don't work, and we understand that. But we will give an account for how we've worked at our marriages and whether we've honoured our marriages or just thrown them away carelessly because we fancied a younger model. Does that make sense? Someone in the crowd in front of Jesus said, well, 
Maybe then it would be better if we didn't all get married. Maybe some of us should aim to be single. And in response to this thought, Jesus mentions three categories of people and he employs the word eunuchs, which we will look at. These three categories are these, those who are eunuchs from birth, those who are made eunuchs by people, and those who choose a lifestyle of a eunuch in order to serve a specific calling from the Lord. So you may say that he's not talking about sexuality or transgender issues here, but you know what? I'm not so sure. I actually think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Through my research for this message, I learned that the term eunuch in first century literature was widely used to describe men who were either not obviously heterosexual, i.e. not attracted to women, or unmasculine or effeminate men. That was a common understanding of that term, eunuch. (coughs) Female sexuality or gender perception didn't get much press at all in the first century. But there was this term for non-heterosexual or effeminate men. And this understanding of the word eunuch would have been understood by Jesus' original audience. So in order to understand what Jesus is teaching here, it's easiest to begin with category two, those who are made eunuchs by people. This is almost certainly referring to the castration of males in order to prevent them from reproducing or to change their sexual orientation in order to appoint them to positions of specific responsibility. Are you with me? So it was not uncommon for prisoners of war to be emasculated to prevent them from intermarrying or reproducing in the culture of the conqueror who had taken these men as slaves, brought them into his own culture, and didn't want them to intermarry but wanted them as slaves. Sometimes they would castrate the males so that they had no power to do so. Sometimes... uh, men were castrated in order to appoint these men over the harems of kings or dignitaries. These eunuchs were highly respected civil servants. This was common both in the Orient and in the Roman world. So why did they do that? As I understand it, they did this so that the person didn't have to rely on a moral code or personal restraint. Their desire for heterosexual sex was removed from them. They would no longer be distracted from their responsibilities or attracted to any women. Jesus was saying, due to surgically enforced celibacy, these people could not be expected to enter into heterosexual marriage. I think that's what he's saying with that clause there. So stay with me. Jumping to category three, those who choose not to marry for the sake of the the kingdom. This is people who abstain from sex or marriage in order to be free to serve God in some way. Paul was a great example of this. He explained that he had the right to marry, but he chose not to do so, so that he could do the job that God had called him to without expecting a wife to follow him through the painful stonings and shipwrecks, etc. He actually said, I wish more people were like me, free to go wherever with the gospel. So his was a choice to embrace singleness and celibacy instead of heterosexual marriage. So, let's look at the third category Jesus referred to. Those who are born eunuchs. Does he mean that those who, like Paul, choose to live a celibate, single, single but full life? Possibly. Only saying that people are born into circumstances suggests that there is no choice involved. 
It's a condition that that person hasn't chosen for themselves, but they must simply come to terms with what they've inherited. As they grow and they navigate through life, someone's not plugged their computer in. So given what Jesus is saying in option two, is Jesus saying that some are born with no attraction to the opposite sex and therefore have no intention or ability to reproduce? I very much doubt he's referring to the extremely rare occasions when babies are born without genitalia. Jesus is speaking in the context of challenges of heterosexual marriage. And I think he's simply acknowledging that some people are without heterosexual attraction and therefore are not intended for heterosexual marriage in response to a direct question. He doesn't say, therefore, they are designed for homosexual marriage. It doesn't say that. He's simply saying that not everybody fits the mould for heterosexual marriage. Are you with me? I'm asking you to agree with me. Just, are you following what I'm saying? <laughs> I think that's the simplest and clearest understanding of these words of Jesus. And I hope that these words of Jesus would give anyone who feels that they have never been typically heterosexual or typically suited to the, their born gender some sense of being understood and accepted by Jesus. And then he finishes his comment with these words. Let anyone accept this who can. He's saying, I want you to embrace this reality, however you experience it. And some would say, well, what if I can't? What if I can't embrace that reality that I've been born with, if you're in category one? Well, perhaps the introductory verse can help us a little. Let's read verse 11, which is the top one on the screen. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said. Only those whom God helps. Jesus acknowledges two things. Number one, not everyone can accept the options here. The options here are of heterosexual marriage, accepted celibacy, enforced celibacy, or chosen celibacy. Jesus is acknowledging that some people will have to concede that none of these options are acceptable to them. He doesn't say how we pastor through that. He just says that's how it is for some. He also acknowledges that if you're going to embrace a celibate life for whatever reason, you will need God's help. It's not easy. Whether you're gay or straight or trans or anything else you may feel, a lifetime in this world without a happy heterosexual marriage as someone who, as someone who is comfortable with your born gender for whatever reason usually has its very real challenges. Is that a fair comment? A lifetime of heterosexual marriage has challenges too, I just want to add that. <laughs> but God is saying that whoever you are, I want to help. I want to help you in these areas of your life. Don't hide these things from me, God would say. I'm with you. I'm here to help you. I can look at these things together with you. I'm not afraid to step into this area of your life and begin to work with you on this. I believe God would say, I understand you and you need my help to embrace your life as it is and to find joy and peace in your circumstances. And if you let me, I can do that for you. I believe that would be how the Lord would speak to each of us. 
And I know that that will require a process and deep humility and it will, it will require God's power. But I believe God is committed to us to receive us now just as we are. We can, I believe he wants to help us to navigate through our lives together. Is that the message that the Christian community is giving to the LGBT community? I would argue not nearly clearly enough. So how do we pastorally apply this message to my wonderful imaginary front row here? Well, each situation is different. And I believe that the Lord would be working with each of them differently. As a church, we would want to help them to look at these things with the Lord, with great care and with unconditional love. We as a church family would want to cover these people with waves of prayer so that the devil is thrown out of the conversation and the Holy Spirit can flood in with peace and joy and strength and to give his people wisdom for life and rest for their souls. Amen? Well, nobody walked out. That's good. Um, I think this may have thrown out, thrown out all kinds of questions. It's the thing about looking at theology and the scriptures and trying to apply them to complicated lives. It usually raises more questions than it settles. So I'd love to continue this conversation with any of you regardless of your experience, regardless of how you feel, regardless of your perception of your identity, regardless of who you have in your community that you want to share Christ with and you want to find ways and words to do that, I would love to continue this conversation and encourage you to continue this conversation between you as well. But most of all this morning, what I want from all of you is to be ready to love whoever walks through those doors. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for the way that you help each of us. There is no area of life that you're not willing to look at. There is no feeling that we've ever had that you're not willing to engage with. There's no mistake that we've ever made that you're not willing to forgive us for and set us going again. Lord, we're grateful for the way that you lived amongst people. We're grateful for the way you modelled life the way that you were uncompromising with truth, but you were dripping with grace, and everybody was attracted to you that could smell something of the beauty of the kingdom on your life. And the people that were most attracted were the people that felt the most unacceptable in community. I love that. And Lord, I want, I want that spirit that you have of just drawing all comers without judgment I want that spirit of salvation to be powerfully at work in this church. But also we, we look to you for your help. Lord, we are messy lives and broken human beings. We have all sorts of things we wrestle with. 
And this area of sexuality and identity can be so painful. And so, Lord, we seek your help. Lord, we want to live in your world, in your way, and we want to bring glory to you. We want all of our lives to conform to Christ. And it's not always easy. And so, Father God, I want to ask for just a tremendous spirit of grace and of power and of peace to be at work in this fellowship. So whoever we are and whatever we are, we can find our way to wholeness in you. Lord, bless each person here who is battling or struggling with their sexuality. Or just with the status at the moment, where the, the, the season they're in, whether it be single or married, Lord, I pray that you, you would help us to navigate through our lives. And I pray that your peace would be with each of us and we would be drawn nearer and nearer to you as we talk about this and not further and further apart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Very, very well.